All right, so did I tell you that last week I was going to tell you what we're going to do this fall? Did I say that? Did I say, you know, I was going to tell you what we're going to do? So I, I guess I have to, right? All right, okay, so here's what we're going to do. Uh, I mentioned that we're going to do two books of the Bible at the same time, Old Testament, New Testament, just like the first time we've done it last fall, first time ever in the history of Redeemer, the first time ever in this church, two books simultaneously at the same time. Last time, uh, it was... What was it? It was Galatians and Judges. And so in Judges, you were seeing it. and Galatians, you were hearing it spelled out for you in very specific, detailed ways, the message. Fantastic. We're doing the same thing, same approach. Uh, the Old Testament book is going to be Jonah. The New Testament book is going to be 1 Peter. And you might be asking, well, why are we doing that? Why did you pair that? I could tell you that I actually started with a different New Testament book. And then I realized what was happening. And here it is. We're going to call this series the Strange God Series. Well, why would we do that? Because Jonah, if anything, is the strangest prophet that ever lived. It's an incredibly strange book. It even ends strangely. It just ends. You're like, is there another chapter? There should be another chapter to this thing. Some call him the bad prophet. I don't think he's a bad prophet. I think he's a strange prophet. Because I think God is strange to him. And then you say, well, what about 1 Peter? What are we going to do with 1 Peter? Well, 1 Peter talks about this strange community. It's so strange that the world doesn't understand it. It's so strange that those who are a part of it are like, who are these people and why am I here? So we're going to look at a strange church and a strange prophet. Because if Christianity is anything, it's absolutely strange. This great. So what are you going to do when you come to a strange God? What are you going to do? How do you approach a strange God? You, when, you, when you acknowledge that God is strange, you acknowledge that you don't, you don't know him naturally. So you want to be curious. So this fall, we're going to be incredibly curious. Who are you? What is this strange gospel? What is this strange God? What is this strange community? What is this strange Bible? And then here's the other thing. Curiosity, and then be ready to be astonished. Because if something is strange to you, and you start to get it, oh my word, what is this? Jesus' teaching was so strange that the religious leaders of the day were saying, what is this new kind of teaching? That's what I want all of us to feel. That's what I want all of us to think. What is this? Be curious. Be astonished. Because it's incredibly strange. All right, today, though, is Psalm 46, and like I said, ah, Jeff, what's the title? Johnny, what's the title? What's the title? What do you want me to put on the... Psalm 46, I just, I ran out of gas. I don't know. 
Uh, this is it. So just for fun, here's how we're going to introduce it. Has anyone ever heard of the King James Version of the Bible? Anybody? Anybody? Or those of you who are really cool, the KJV or the NKJV, right? Okay. Well, it was translated in 1601 through 1611. It was during the reign of King James, not LeBron James, King James. It started, it was the standard English Bible for over 300 years. So it's a pretty significant work, right? I mean, Luther translated uh, the Bible for the first time into German, and this was one of the, this is the standard at the time for 300 years of the English-speaking world approaching the Bible and putting a work together. So the translators wanted to produce the best English translation ever, forever on the planet. They did pretty well. 300 years is a long time. So when they got to the Psalms, they were asking themselves, who should translate the Psalms? Who? Who should translate the multi-layer ideations and images of God's poetry, the Psalms? Who's up for the task? Who should we ask? Who should we recruit? And the answer was, a young man in the back said, I'll do it. Who is that young man? Just William Shakespeare. So Shakespeare finished his Psalm 45, right? He's done 45 Psalms now, and he comes to Psalm 46. Uh, serendipitously, providentially, or luckily, whatever your word choice is. He comes to Psalm 46 on the day of his 46th birthday. So if you're William Shakespeare, what would you do? Well, it's hard because we're not William Shakespeare because if you were, we'd talk about you up here, but we don't. Here's what he did. If you have the King James Version, if you have it in your uh, Bible app, go ahead and get it up, Psalm 46, really, really quick. I want you to look at the 46th word from the beginning of the psalm. So from the beginning of the psalm, go 46 words in. Here's what you're going to find. Shake. Verse 3, though the mountains shake. Then I want you to look at the 46th word from the end. So go from the end and move in 46 words. I want you to get to verse 9, and you're going to find the word spear. He cutteth the spear in sunder. Shakespeare. And then Psalm 46 came to Shakespeare. Uh, just for fun, let's do another one. Uh, have any of you ever heard of this famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God? Anyone? Okay, good. Um, it's one of the most popular hymns ever written. It's sung across traditions, and it has for 500 years, and still counting, because we're going to sing it today. Uh, Martin Luther wrote it. It was so impactful in his life that he has it at the bottom. I don't know who he told to put there. I don't know someone else because they knew the significance in his life, but a mighty fortress is engraven into the base of his tomb. Luther writes the hymn because of Psalm 46. Luther comes to Psalm 46 and he can't get it out of his head. He reads it, he teaches it, he studies it, and he can't shake it. It gets into his head. It starts working on his heart. So he writes, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, from Psalm 46. And then, 
Psalm 46 came to Luther. So what's going to be your story this morning? I bet it's going to be this. And then Psalm 46 came for me. I know some of you are thinking that just won't happen because you don't know me. And if that is you, please hear me. Now I know he will. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Here we go. Verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, therefore, what are the implications of this? What's the practical? Who cares about what, we're just, what we just heard? Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the sea, Though the waters, its waters roar and foam. Though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. Verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Verse 8. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, he shatters the spear, he burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So, Lord, we know that your word is like thunder and lightning, and we know that your word is like a still, small voice. And both of those are the same thing. And so, Lord, would you speak just like this text and melt us? Would you speak just like at creation and remake us? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And then Psalm 46 came for you. I want you to look at the end of verse 3. Do you see it? Selah. I want you to look at the end of verse 7. Do you see it? Selah. I want you to look at the end of verse 11. Do you see it? Selah. What does Selah mean? I know you've seen it, right? You've seen it in the Bible. It's just like me over the years. It's just kind of like... Odd. Move on. But then again, you know, it's a strange book. Each sila marks a thought unit. So verses 1 through 3 is a thought unit. Verses 4 through 7 is a thought unit. Verses 8 through 11 is a thought unit. We have three thought units, all pointing to one thing. So what does sila mean? There's a couple of things it can mean. But many times, most of the time, like it does here, it means stop. Silence. Be still. Listen. If Luther was here, he'd say, shut up and listen. Luther says Christianity starts with, shut up and listen. Christianity continues with, shut up and listen. Christianity thrives with, shut up and listen. 
Christianity puts you back together with shut up and listen. So you're struggling this morning and you're thinking, you're struggling with who am I? Psalm 46 says, shut up and listen. You're crushed. Am I loved? Psalm 46 says, shut up and listen. You're desperate. I keep doing what I don't want to do. What I want to do most I do not do, but I do the very thing I hate. What's wrong with me? Psalm 46 says, shut up and listen. You wonder, how do I connect with God? You long to matter. What's my mission in life? Uh, You're full of fear. The culture is unraveling. The church is irrelevant. Psalm 46 says, shut up. And listen, you're thinking I'm not going to make it. Shut up and listen. Psalm 46 is saying to you right now, Selah. 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 Shut up and listen. And then... Then Psalm 46 came for you. Let's look at Selah number one, shall we? The first thought unit. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Okay. And then Psalm 46 came for you in your trouble. Selah. Shut up and listen. So how bad is it really? How bad is the trouble in verses one through three? Let's say you're a seventh grader and you're living in the ancient world. I have a seventh grader. And if you're in the seventh grade and you're in the ancient world, you're taught science, but you're taught the science of mountains. And so you're taught that, you're taught that mountains are the pillars of the earth. And so mountains, what they do is they, they hold the earth, the land. They hold the sea. They hold space, the sky, all in place. And so mountains reach down and anchor the depths of the sea. They run through the heart of the land and they pierce into the void of space and hold everything together. So if the mountains move, the pillars snap. The seas collapse. The land collapses. The void of space turns into a black hole. Chicken Little is back in business. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, how bad is it? Let me tell you, it's bad. It's a a cosmic chaos collapse. Some scholars say, well, this is obviously a metaphor for trouble, right? Obviously, because you see it. And so if it's an obvious metaphor for trouble, you just apply it accordingly. So you go up to your financial stress. God is a very present help in your financial trouble. Great, thanks. Or you go into people that annoy you, or you go into the culture business, or you go into your fears and anxieties, and you say, listen, God is a very present help in this trouble. That could be the meaning. 
Others say it's obviously the end of all things. Obviously. When the old age ends and the new age begins. So you apply accordingly. Okay. How do I apply that? Okay. I don't know. But that could be the meaning. Still others who read the Bible in two ways, historically and redemptively. In other words, they take into account the Bible's two poles. Pole number one is the original historical meaning there in the text, but knows that the original historical meaning is always connected to a redemptive story meaning because this is one book and one story. It's like reading Harry Potter book one and forgetting that there are six other books of a storyline. Don't get me wrong, book one's great. Holy cow, when you're done with seven volumes. So if you read the Bible historically and redemptively, you read it this way. The cosmic collapse is already here. I want you to notice the strong present tense of verse 1. God is a refuge, our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So do you see what's happening? The strong present tense carries you, the reader, into verses 2 and 3. It carries you into the pillars of the earth snapping right before your very eyes. It carries you into watching space turn into a void black hole that collapses. It takes you into the depths of the sea and it's starting to rise and crumble. And it takes you to the earth and the land on its axis as it snaps in two and rolls who knows where. But it's being moved. The mountains are being moved. And verse 1 is taking you in there. Verse 46, Psalm 46 is saying to you and me right now, cosmic trouble is already upon you. It's all around you. Because the writer of Psalm 46, here's what's so important. I don't know. When you look at the Psalms, they're prayers. But you ever wonder, where do these prayers come from? You know where they come from? The first five books of the Bible. Because prayer is never primary speech. If you want to improve your prayer life, we say it all the time, don't start with prayer. I can't tell you how many times I start with prayer and I never pray. Because prayer is not the first speech. God's words, His speech are the first speech. When He speaks, oh, I have something to say. And so the Psalms are reading the first five books of the Bible and they're saying stuff because they've been spoken back to life again. So the psalmist has read Genesis. The psalmist has read the beginning of all things. The psalmist knows the first five books in the Bible. And the psalmist knows that sin has moved the mountains into the sea. Sin has moved you into the sea. You are in trouble. Sin has moved your relationships into the sea. Your relationships are in trouble. Sin has moved homes, schools, 
churches, communities, neighborhoods, the workplace, gender, education, political power, Waco, into the sea. All things are in trouble. The cosmic collapse is already here. The cosmic collapse is upon you. And then Psalm 46 came. God is a refuge and a strength, a very present help in trouble. Selah. Let's look at Selah number two. Some of you are thinking, but, but Jeff, I mean, I try and I try and I try to make it to this refuge. I can see it. I see the refuge of verse one. I see the mighty fortress. It's out there. It's there. I've tried and tried to make it there. I run for it. I read my Bible, I pray, I go to church, I do ministry, I tithe, I obey, I ask for the Holy Spirit, I ask for the gifts of the Holy Spirit, I'm a social justice activist, I study doctrine, I don't cuss, maybe that's my problem. I train my children in the way they should go, I'm sexually pure. A refuge, a mighty fortress, is, according to the Hebrew lexicon, quote this, a defensive fortress against attack. Well, thank you, Hebrew lexicon. A defensive place of safety and help and trouble. Thank you again, because that's also helpful. So the mighty fortress, a refuge, is a defensive structure that's meant for safety, and it's meant for security, and it's meant for help. It's out there. You just got to get to it. Right? So you're in the midst of a battle, and let's say you're not doing well in the battle, and you're like, retreat, everyone, back to the fort. And you run, and you run, and you fight, and you fight, and you train, and you train, and you work, and you work, and all you have to do is get there. And it's safety. All you have to do is get there, and there's help, but that's the problem. You never get there. And a lot of you know what I mean. Like, I'm trying to get there, God. I'm trying to figure out who you are. I'm trying to connect with you. I just can't get there. I, I'm trying to be a good husband. I'm trying to be a good father. And jeez, I can't get there. I'm trying to deal with this thing I don't want to do. I can't get there. I'm trying to love people more. I can't get there. I'm trying to be generous. I can't get there. I'm trying to matter. I'm trying to figure out what my mission is. I can't get there. Selah number two starts in verse four, and it says, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the most high. And then I wish you could, I wish you could have my job just for like, I don't know. I'll be generous. Let's just say one hour on Tuesday morning when I begin to think of the text, just for one thing. I just, 
when I look at the text and I eventually start moving into what other scholars say about the text, I wish you could just be there for that moment. Because it's always, sometimes it's shocking, sometimes it's hilarious, sometimes it's just like, oh my word. But everybody freaks out at verse 4. They have no idea why it's connected to verses 1 through 3. Some go so far to say is it's a foreign edited text. Great. Those are called higher critics. <laughs> I love that. Propaganda. Um, but don't drown in the river image. Everybody's trying to figure out what's the river. I mean, why are we in a river? We just got to the seas being collapsing and foaming and rising, and now there's this river that has glad streams. What is that? Well, here's the point. It's just really, really simple. The point is God reverses the cosmic collapse. The point is God builds a city in the midst of the chaos. What? In the midst of the mountains moving into the sea, in the midst of the earth shattering and the space falling and collapsing and Chicken Little getting a full-time job. In the midst of that, there's a city being built called the city of God. Okay, well, what, what's about this city? God is in the midst of her. Interesting. She shall not be moved. Striking. God will help her when morning dawns. Well, that's an interesting phrase because that's one of the most famous lines in all the Bible because that's the famous line when the Egyptians are coming after the Israelites in the Red Sea. The Red Sea is parted, so they're surrounded by the chaos of the sea on both sides. They've got an enemy, a ravaging enemy, led by a, a God king that wants to wipe them off the face of the earth. And it says, when morning dawned, God looks, sees the Egyptian army, and closes the sea. Just like that. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. It's like we can't get out of this. But, I mean, do you notice that Israel, the city of God, is surrounded just even literarily in the text? Because in verses 1 through 3, it's a cosmic collapse. In verses 4 through 6, it's the nation's raging. It's completely this beast-like state that wants to tear it apart. And in the middle of it both sits this little city of God. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The same voice that created everything is the same voice that ends everything. Why? Have you asked that? Because it's his voice that right now upholds everything. You are a worded person. Creation is a worded thing. Within creation, within the invisible heavens and the visible earth, the, the unknown particle that holds it all together is called the word of God. He utters his voice, the, word, the earth melts, the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. So here's the picture. In verses 1 through 3, you have a fortress that's out there that everybody's running to. Safety's there. Run. Let's go. Some of you are good runners. Some of you are endurance runners. Some of you are sprinters. You run out of head. You run out of gas. Some of you are endurance, and you can keep it up for a long time, but you still don't get there. And in the midst of a fortress that's out there that we never reach, Verses 4 through 7 tell you, and then he came. Do you see it? God is in the midst of her. God will help her. The Lord of hosts is with us. 
Four times the fortress isn't out there. Four times in this passage the fortress is in here. With you. It's stunning, isn't it? I mean, this is incredible. I mean, look at this. The mountains move. You don't. The mountains tremble, which means they're in fear. You don't. And there's only one reason why you don't. Because he came. Christianity is not trying to get into a mighty fortress. It's not trying to obtain refuge. It's not running for refuge. It's not striving to activate the mighty fortress. It's not trying to get into a fort. Christianity is the mighty fortress coming to you. In other words, the picture is completely different. And all the religions of the world, all the philosophies of the world, all the propaganda of the world is nirvana, whatever you want to call it, um, in the end game, it's the new world, the new universe. Um, whatever it is, salvation, uh, refuge, a mighty fortress, safety, security, it's out there. And everyone's trying to get in there. But Christianity is the warrior in the fortress comes out to get you and obliterates the enemy. Let's end this last one, Selah number three, verse eight. Come behold the works of the Lord. He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Selah number three invites you to a cosmic conflict. In other words, Selah number three is saying, hey, I'm going to take you out of your little fortress that you think you're in, and we're going to go for a walk. I'm going to take you out to the greatest battlefield of all time. I'm going to take you out to the cosmic conflict of the ages. I'm going to take you out to where it is utterly pillar snapping, space falling, seas rising, the earth crumbling, the nations raging, and we're going to walk right into the middle of that. Come on. Where, where'd you go? Come on. Come on. Let's go. I want you to come. I want you to behold the cosmic conflict. And Psalm 46 takes you out into the cosmic conflict. But it's not enlisting you. Psalm 46 is not going to say, now fight for your life. Run for the refuge. Will you get busy trying to activate God, please? Because we need help. Call it in now. And that's how we think of prayer. No, instead, you're being invited to watch someone else win. Come, behold the works of the Lord. He ends the war. He breaks the spear. He burns the chariots. He wins. See,
So how do you know if you're a good spectator, though? You know, how do you know if verses 8 and 9 are going into your soul, that you're actually one of those people that go out and say, oh, I'm beholding the works of the Lord. I get it. I get Christianity. I, I get the Bible now. The Bible's about this. I get, I get what prayer's about. Prayer's about this. I get what community's about. Community is about this. I get what the mission is about. The mission is about this. I get it. How do you know you get it? How do you know verses 8 through 9 passes into your soul? How do you know that you're called to be a spectator? You're called to stare and marvel and be astonished and absolutely put back together again by what you see God do. How do you know you're a good witness, a good Christian? Those of you that are concerned about holiness, how do you know you're holy? Those of you that want to love people, how do you know you're loving people? Those of you that are concerned about obedience, how do you know you're obeying? The answer is in verse 10. Be still and know that I am the Lord. This is the only time God speaks in the whole psalm, so it's a big deal. The image is impossible because the image, I mean, it's amazing, right? I know everybody's like, oh, I don't know if I like all this war image today. Sorry. The image right here of being still is actually an ancient Near Eastern image of a soldier in battle, in the midst of the battle, in the midst of spears whizzing by, in the midst of sword strikes coming down on him, in the midst of shields shattering around him, in the midst of blood spilling all over him, in the midst of him trying to figure out what's happening in the chaos, in the midst of a big angry dude charging him. It literally means for the soldier to drop his arms. Be still. It's impossible. You're right. It's absolutely impossible. You're in the middle of a cosmic collapse and the earth is turning inside out. The sky is falling. The seas are rising. You've been taken into the sea because you're a sinner. Your relationships have been taken into the sea because they're sinners. The whole world's been taken into the sea because it's broken and messed up. The home is, the church is, the communities are, the cities are, the educational systems are, the political powers are. Everyone is in the midst of this, and God says to you in the midst of it, how do you know you're getting verses 8 through 9? God says to you, be still. Possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. Unless he comes. Unless he walks onto the battlefield in the midst of this battle and fights for you. And breaks the spear and burns the chariot and ends the war. It's over. It's finished. It's done. How do you know you're beholding the works of the Lord? You know to the degree to which you're still. That you're no longer running to the refuge. You're no longer trying to activate God. You're no longer trying and trying and trying and trying. You drop your arms and you behold the wonders 
of what God has just done. Now you can be still. He fights for you, so what happens is this, is that Jesus actually comes because he's the mighty fortress. And when Jesus comes on the cross, sin shakes with fear, but you don't. When Jesus comes on the cross, because he comes for you, because he's the warrior, he fights for you. He fights for you on the cross. He fights for you in a perfect life. He fights for you in a powerful resurrection. So what he does is that sin now shakes with fear on the cross. You don't. Sin now is moved into the sea, but you're not. You're moved with a resurrected life. And when you start beholding that, and that starts passing into your soul, you absolutely learn to be still. Selah, shut up and listen. Let me pray for us.